Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined by the multi-talented and inimitable Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia writes on the law and the courts for Slate. She runs the podcast Amicus and her recent book, is called Lady Justice. Dahlia, it's a pleasure to see you this morning. Thank you, Joel. Thank you for having me. Dahlia, in your book, you share the stories of a number of women, and particularly with regard to areas of their career where they've pushed the boundaries of the law, where they've fought for for justice or for those who are are, are marginalized. And you do so through the lens of gender. I wonder if you could explain why. I certainly quipped at a dinner party last night that if I had written about like nine men who had saved democracy, they would have written to say, my chapter was good, but it should have been a little longer. Um, <laughs> listen, I mean, we're going to have this conversation about gender and law, and we should start by saying this is just broad strokes and essentializing. And by no means am I attempting to say like all guys do or and all women do or that, you know, every woman lawyer is X. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about a bunch of them was, and then I'll stop, but like I cut my teeth covering the era where both Justice Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor were the only two women on the court. And I spent an immense amount of time in my early career trying to figure out if there were commonalities or any places where these women who were really polar opposites in every single way came together. And overwhelmingly, what I came to feel as I covered them was that they were more similar than different, but that the story of the two of them was always the most interesting story. Actually, I'd love to explore that with you a little bit. Um, But first, I wanted to to note, you mentioned in your book that perhaps if it wasn't for Sandra Day O'Connor, you wouldn't have gone to law school. I think that's true of a lot of us. I think that I was on the fence about whether or not I wanted to go. And I think seeing a woman elevated to the court and seeing that there's a path there for me and people who look like me for certain made me feel more comfortable. And I remember at Sonia Sotomayor's confirmation hearings, there was lines around the block of young Latina women who would just wait so that they could have, you know, five minutes to sit in the back of the chamber and then move along. And Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson said the same thing, uh, you know, about her hearing. I just think you need to be able to see people like you in power before you could imagine yourself there. And that was certainly the case for me. If we can, I'd love to jump back in and get a little insight from from what you learned in your study of the court. What were you expecting and then what what did you discover? Almost immediately on arrival at the court, I started doing a sort of little micro study of how these two women approached law and whether I could derive from that some principle of, you know, this is how women do jurisprudence. And it turned out there was some academic study. When O'Connor first came onto the court, there were some really thoughtful, principally women legal scholars who were trying to assess whether she had a sort of uniquely womanly gendered, you know, approach to the law. 
And first of all, O'Connor hated those studies. I mean, she really bitterly resented it. And, you know, she famously said, a wise old man and a wise old woman will come to the same conclusion. But I think that by the time I was covering the court and there was an N of two instead of one, most of those studies had kind of exploded because they were so different. You know, uh, Ginsburg is so crisp. She was so rule-oriented. She was Scalia-like in her sort of bright-line tests and doctrine. O'Connor was much more of a standards person, you know, much more of a how do I kind of find some compromise position that'll basically fit. They just couldn't have been more different at oral argument. You know, O'Connor was super, super, always the first question, always, you know, sort of push, push, push. Uh, Ginsburg much more restrained at the time. So any principle that you could find that you would say like, oh, they have this in common, they didn't. They were very, very close. They got each other through their respective bouts of cancer. But what the studies ended up showing, and I love this, is after they had been seated together for many years, the study showed, unsurprisingly, that, you know, as a Republican appointee and a Democrat appointee, they disagreed about 50% of the time. But on issues that had to do with gender, with sexual harassment, with women's rights, they agreed close to 90% of the time. So it was interesting that I think this is one of those lessons that experience sometimes is a better predictor of outcomes than doctrine or, you know, constitutional approach. And I always thought that was really interesting. And I, I think the only other thing I would say about this, because I really was struck by this, and I was not the only person who was struck by it, but when O'Connor left the court and Ginsburg was alone, and she was one woman with eight men, having been one of two for her whole time there. She really changed. And that's when, you know, this idea that we now have of this sort of firebrand, you know, punchy, who'd write these sassy dissents, you know, the sort of Shelby County RBG and the, you know, Lily Ledbetter RBG. All of that changed when she was alone at the court. You remember the Savannah Redding, the strip search case, where the, the high school girl was strip searched by school officials without notifying her parents? It, it was just, it was such a cool oral argument because it was, she was the only woman at that point. And some of the men on the court were like, you know, rock'em, sock'em, like Porky's jokes. Ha, ha, ha. Was she searched from the inside out? Ha, ha, ha. You know, like just not taking it seriously. And she kind of got mad on the bench. She was like, this isn't funny. I mean, it's it's not just as poor Justice Breyer made some you know, Briarish thing about when he was in gym class, people used to stick things in his underwear, everybody laughed. Like it was out of control. It really did sort of feel like, like, you know, we were watching meatballs or something. And then suddenly Justice Ginsburg was like, this is nothing like gym class. Like you don't. And then she gave what was a really surprising while the case was pending interview to Joan Biskupic saying, this is not right. There. We do not share sensibilities. And she said explicitly, there needs to be another woman on the court. And very soon after that, President Obama tapped Sonia Sotomayor. But it was one of those very rare moments when gender was very, you know, off the like the, the, the pages of the books talked about while a case was pending. I should also note that oral argument had looked as though Savannah Redding was going to lose her case. She ended up winning because several of the male justices seemed to flip their positions after she spoke in the press. But it was one of those very few examples. They had a coming of, to RBG moment. Yeah. Of, uh, but also RBG coming to RBG. Like RBG really, really changed and became much 
more outspoken. Uh, and I think it, it's, you know, one of the things that makes me a little bit sad is that the, that now we talk about RBG as this, you know, fiery feminist, you know, she was the opposite for almost all her career. She was a get along, you know, very, very much collegial, cordial. Her close friends on the DC circuit were like Bork and Scalia. Like she was not a firebrand. And she changed really toward the end of her career on the court for all these interesting reasons. And I don't think we talk about it. We talk about her as though she was like burning bras with Gloria Steinem. She was a different generation. And part of why I'm kind of obsessed with that is because it goes to how lawyerly she was. She was not an activist. She was a lawyer. That was one of the distinctions I was keeping in the back of my mind when you were talking about her and uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who in some respects, had more of that political gene. Yeah, O'Connor, I mean, she was an elected official and she kind of glad-handed her way through, you know, political life in Arizona. She was charming. She was sort of like the social director at the court. She was making people have lunches together. Her clerk, she was bringing in crockpots of food. Like, she really was, you know, for a feminist icon, like kind of also Betty Crocker and very, very kind of caretaking and very savvy. And Ginsburg was savvy in a really different way. She was savvy insofar as the ways that she framed and brought cases, the way she handled constitutional doctrine, the way she kind of changed the world uh, thinking about the 14th Amendment. But, you know, a glad-hander? No, not at all. Like, that's, that was not her way. And it again goes to that first question you asked. They were so different. But it does always strike me that the two of them on cases where you had to imagine what a woman's life was like were aligned more often than not. For those who haven't read uh, Dahlia's recent book, it, it explores the law and the experience and the leadership of, of women lawyers really on the forefront of today's most important legal battles. How do you see this lady justice paradigm, how does that fit within the experience of women in the legal profession as a whole? Is this kind of a new frontier for, for women and the law? I was really struck. I mean, these were all cases that I covered. And I was very aware, I think this is your question, very early on in the Trump era, how overrepresented women were in, you know, the quote unquote legal resistance. And I think I even said, you know, the first four out of the five injunctions that enjoined the travel ban in the first 48 hours, women judges. So I just sort of mostly had somewhere in the back of my head the sense that, well, good, you know, we've reached parity in law school. You know, women are all over, you know, the federal bench, all over law firms. We're everywhere and we're showing up. And it seemed as though something interesting had happened, right? This is really an interesting moment to say after decades of saying, you know, women have not quite kind of gotten there in the law and, and by no means, by the way, have we achieved parity, you know, at, at, at law firms or in the academy, but the gap is closing. And so I think I was really struck by my 
ongoing sense that women were very much at the center of a lot of the parts of resistance and that they were doing it in interesting ways that I wanted to flag. One was they just seemed to be willing to say, dude, if no one is going to do this, I'm going to do it. You know, that's Becca Heller. That's Robbie Kaplan and Karen Dunn in Charlottesville. Well, yeah, I I remember in the piece with Robbie Kaplan, you're talking about how what made you think you could bring this case Actually, Dahlia, maybe you could explain what was the case there and why was it so audacious of her to even think that she could bring it, let alone win? So this was, um, and I should note this was personal, it was Charlottesville 2017, the Unite the Right um, torchlit Nazi slash white supremacist march. And I had been living in Charlottesville for 18 years, so it was home for me. And it was very, very clear to anybody who was watching that it wasn't a one-off. It wasn't, uh, oh, you know, peaceful protest, a bunch of people supporting the Confederate statues. And, you know, what? Antifa showed up and, like, you know, bad things happened. And as Donald Trump said, there were good people on both sides. That was manifestly not what was going on. We'd already had one white supremacist march in Charlottesville. We had a Klan march. We had a Proud Boys. Like, this was happening, and we also know um, the places like the Southern Poverty Law Center and other folks who were monitoring the chatter knew that people were coming on August of 2017 uh, carrying flagpoles, wearing body armor. Some folks had guns. There was a very deliberate plan. When it happened, when racial violence happened first at the University of Virginia the night before when counter-protesters were beaten and pepper sprayed, and then again when uh, a car rammed into and killed Heather Heyer and injured a whole bunch of other people, it was clear that this was going to be construed as a free speech problem, right? They were just, this was Skokie again, and people have a right to assemble and to protest. And it was Robbie and Karen, Robbie Kaplan and Karen Dunn, who really said, like, no. And if, in fact, the Jeff Sessions Justice Department is not going to come into Charlottesville and investigate this as a racialized, violent incident, then I guess we are. And it's what was audacious to your question was that there wasn't exactly some legal hook to hang this on. So they dusted off the KKK Act, uh, a Reconstruction era statute that essentially says you cannot uh, conspire to do racial violence. And it had not been used. It had been used a little bit in the 1960s, not much. And they just deployed it. In an entirely new way. In a new way, the the lawsuit, I mean, part of the reason I think everybody, in my view, everybody in the country should have been following this lawsuit. It unfolded at the same time as the Kyle Rittenhouse trial was on television and the Ahmed uh, Arbery uh, uh, killers were on television. And so it didn't get the attention it should have gotten, Joel. But I think it is an incredible example of kind of creative novel lawyering by determined, I mean, this was four years in the making to do this lawsuit. They got this huge judgment against, you know, Richard Spencer, Chris Cantwell, like the who's who of, you know, Nazis and Klansmen and alt-right activists. It was a massive win. 
And in the beginning, people were saying, no, this is a free speech problem. You can't get around Skokie. So to me, it is so emblematic of the thing you asked about, which is I'm going to find some statute. A lot of people are going to tell me, don't do this. I'm going to do it anyway because there should be someone doing it. And I think both Karen and Robbie would have been the first to say, like, we're not born for this moment. Like, this was not what we trained to do and certainly didn't plan on, you know, four years of, like, being in depositions with people who, you know, threatened them and, and you know, wanted to harm their families. But this is what creative badass lawyers do. And to me, it's also an example when we are in this moment when we feel so like under the thumb of a Supreme Court and we feel like the legal system is this like black cloak on us, you know, that we can't get out of. I love these stories of women who are just like, eh, let's try this instead. And then they win. Like you said, it, it, at many times it must have felt so hopeless or, you know, at least symbolic. And then in the end, they not only found a hook to hang their hat on, but they managed to pull out a significant victory there. And and a lot of the January 6th insurrectionists are now being looked at through this lens of the KKK Act. So it's funny because it's sort of proof, I think, that when you're sitting here saying, like, what can we do? You know, they, the, they were also just free speech protesters who were looking for the gift shop at the Capitol. No. I'm not sure if it was your quote or one of the people that you profile, but you talk about how law is both the cause of and the the means to fight women's oppression in America. I wonder, is that something that you've long felt? Is that something that you took from some, was that someone else's quote that I'm falsely attributing to you? No, I mean, I think that's the through line of the book which is I came of age thinking, oh, the law is the thing that makes us free. And it's the thing that gives us dignity and equality. It's a good thing in the arc of the moral universe eternally bends toward justice. And then, you know, running headlong into the sense that, oh, the thing that you believed was the machinery of freedom and dignity is in fact the machinery of violence and oppression. And to be fair, most of history, it was used as that latter thing, you know, at least with regard to women, at least with regard to minorities and vulnerable people, enslaved people, immigrants. And so I think that what you're tracing is very much a feeling that I have had increasingly in the last few years, which is, oh, there's a reason there's a malapportioned Senate. There's a reason that the Electoral Count Act is so wildly wildly distortive of the popular will. There's a reason that when the Supreme Court blesses partisan gerrymandering, it becomes harder and harder and harder for, you know, one person, one vote to be effectuated. And that's because that's exactly what the system was designed to do, you know. And so in some sense, all of these minoritarian imperatives that we're living with in the sort of general democratic system are really, for me, brought home when Samuel Alito writes in Dobbs, you know, ladies, if you don't like it, like, sorry you weren't in the 14th Amendment, and sorry you <laughs> well, weren't there to write it or ratify it or vote on it or think about it. Just sucks to be you, ladies, but if you don't like it, vote, right? And I'm paraphrasing there, uh, listeners. But then that that's the same majority of the Supreme Court that is... Blessing voter suppression, blessing gerrymandering, blessing unlimited dark money in, in uh, the electoral system. So I just think there's something fatuous in the extreme 
from the court to say, it's not our fault the system was designed this way, change the system, as they're making it ever harder to change the system. Does that make sense what I just said? I may have said that in a slightly caffeinated fashion. Maybe I'll say it this way, Joel. When SB8 was with the stroke of a pen uh, on the shadow docket a year ago, approved by the Supreme Court, and a lot of us were saying, like, what now? The court just made it impossible for 10% of potentially childbearing population in the United States to have an abortion. For those who, who may not remember the acronym or, or weren't following, am I right, Dahlia, that this was a Texas law that made it impossible or gave everyone a cause of action to sue if they were involved in any way in an abortion? No, it, gave, it was crazier than that. It gave anyone in the country the ability to go to Texas and sue anyone who aided and abetted an abortion. So it could be the Uber driver, it could be the pastor who counseled somebody to have an abortion, and you could collect a bounty. That's why it was being called the bounty bill and the vigilante bill. And it was, I mean, in the weeds a bit, but it was constructed that way so that the state of Texas, no state official was enforcing it, right? There was nobody to sue because there was no state action because all they were doing is say like, come on from Wyoming and you bring a civil suit. And the Supreme Court said, that's fine. Cool. nothing Nothing to do because there's nobody to sue. Nothing to do here because you don't have standing. Yeah. But the, 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 the egregious part wasn't just that the bill was crafted to evade judicial review. It was that the court on the shadow docket in the middle of the night in three sentences said, yeah, this is cool. And didn't explain, just said, you know, this raises novel questions, so we're out, and allowed it to go into effect. And immediately, clinics in Texas stopped providing services. I have to admit, I only learned about the shadow docket from reading your pieces and listening to your podcast. Dahlia, what, what is this shadow docket, and why has it become so relevant of late? So the term was coined by Professor Will Bode who is not, by the way, a flaming liberal. I think Stephen Vladek is the person who has now taken responsibility. Professor Stephen Vladek has taken responsibility for really clocking what it is, and he's got an amazing book coming out. The shadow docket sounds like a nefarious term for what Justice Alito would say is just the court's emergency docket. And the court has always had an emergency docket because there's executions, right? There's all sorts of last minute things that have to be decided at the 11th hour. The term the shadow docket is in reference to the growing number of cases that are not emergencies that are hustled onto that docket as a way to avoid little things like briefing and oral arguments <laughs> and meaningful, you know, written opinions. And a lot of really big, big cases in the last few years have been decided on the shadow docket. So some of the, you know, religious organizations that were challenging COVID limits on how many people could attend services decided on the shadow docket. Uh, the eviction moratorium decided on the shadow docket. Remain in Mexico decided on the shadow docket. SBA, this tech Texas vigilante bill decided on the shadow docket. How does something get on the shadow docket? Does it require 
It's just the posture. It's just brought as a sort of emergency. This needs to be decided right now. I should note that the Trump administration was very, very adept at kind of constructing this is an emergency. We have to bypass all the intermediate steps and get it before the court as an emergency. And in faith, and you know, in, in fairness, some of these things really are emergencies, but when they are not fully litigated, when there's no record, when there's nothing that judges who are supposed to apply this as doctrine. I mean, one of the things that was really alarming about the COVID cases was that the instruction on the next COVID case would be like, well, why don't you just reference our last shadow docket order? Oh, except it's three lines. And so judges had no idea how to even apply the reasoning, which is the one thing the Supreme Court's supposed to be doing. And I think that there's a way in which when an order pops up at midnight, and it's sometimes not even is it unsigned, you don't actually even know what the vote was. It's not even clear unless it's listed who's dissenting. So sometimes that's not published. The The vote is not published. Yeah, no, I mean, it can be, it can just be like, we did this. And and I guess I would say this, there, there is a fight going on. And this time last year, the fight was like in high tilt. And people like Professor Vladek were saying like, this is, show your work. You know, the one thing you're supposed to be doing, Supreme Court, in exchange for public legitimacy is showing your work. And if what you're doing is just showing us the last line of an order mm. on something that affects everyone, like the Remain in Mexico or the eviction moratorium or COVID orders, tell us how, how you got to where you got and let both sides be heard. And uh, Justice Alito gave a speech where he just smacked back, not just at academics who were criticizing the court, but at journalists who were criticizing the court. And I think that I want to be fair and say the court needs to be able to decide issues on an emergency basis. I think what Professor Vladek would say, and you should just interview him because he's much better on this than I am, but what he would say is it's the number of cases that are appearing there. It's the import of the cases, you know, these are huge, huge existential issues. And it's the way in which the reasoning is so slapdash. Those are the things that are working to delegitimize the court. And so as we have, and we are now really in the midst of a huge national conversation about public confidence in the court, and the court has the lowest approval ratings it's ever had. One of the factors is when the court is like beavering away at midnight and handing down three sentence orders that nobody understands how it's applied in the future, or even who wrote it or who signed it, that is the opposite of transparency. And it's part of why I think the public feels that the court is unaccountable. Well, before we go too much further down that road, I want to remind you, I suppose, of, of something one of the figures that you covered in the book pointed out that if we get too cynical, then we lose. Was that Vanita Gupta? Yeah. So this actually goes to that other great framing question you asked, which is, you know, what do you do? What do all these women do with the fact that they live in this split screen where the law is both the instrument of, you know, freedom and equality and also oppression and violence. And, you know, if if you are a black man driving a car in the South, you are deeply aware of this, right? You don't have magical ideas about the court being your savior or, you know, the law being your savior. And so every one of the women in the book has a really different orientation toward that question. And you're exactly right. It kind of goes to how much can you just 
continue to have this aspirational, you know, Warren Court view of the court as something that cares about the dignity of everybody and is working towards having, you know, a sort of tolerant pluralist democracy when the court is, in fact, like day after day, eroding your confidence in in that project. And so it's very funny because like Becca Heller, who founded IRAP, the refugee project that I profile in the travel ban chapter, she just straight up says like, the law is bullshit. I'm just using the master's tools, you know, to take down the master's house. Like I have no, you know, highfalutin lofty ideas about the rule of law. And then you're quite right. uh, Some of the more improbable people like Vanita Gupta, who at the time uh, was the head of the leadership conference, who's now um, in Merrick Garland's Justice Department, or Anita Hill, uh, who in her chapter also says, you know, the law is the thing that gave us Brown v. Board. You know, the law is the thing that gave us Obergefell. And, and both Vanita Gupta and Anita Hill say in different ways exactly the thing you just said, which is the alternative to law is chaos. I think that's Anita Hill's construction, where she's like, you know, there's not a plan B. If you lose confidence in the rule of law or you stop fighting for the rule of law, what rushes in is power and violence. And that never redounds to the benefit of women and minorities. And you can really tell that this is the thing I'm struggling with. And so it's one of the reasons I map it out in the sort of, you know, stringboard of the book and watch all these women grapple with it is this the thing that I'm grappling with post-Dobbs is what do you do when you basically, you know, I've been sort of in love with the law and the concept institution for my whole professional life. But I feel as though not only has it let me down, but I think I'm now like staring down the barrel of, you know, women bleeding out in emergency rooms and going septic because a doctor can't treat them for, you know, an emergency DNC. So I think a lot of the women are giving voice to versions of what a lot of people are feeling about the court, a lot of constitutional law professors. And so I think that that sense that you're both losing faith in this this whole project, but also that that's the time to keep the faith is really, really shot through in the book. And it's also what I'm sitting in right now, you know, that I, I, I as I said to you before, I am almost certain the 2024 election is going to get decided by the Supreme Court. And that terrifies me, you know, in much the same way that it terrified me that the 2020 election almost got decided by the Supreme Court. Legal action post, uh, post-presidential election that will need to be determined by the high court. I think it is by the slimmest of chance factors that 2020 didn't go to the court. I think that this Moore v. Harper case that the court is hearing the, you know, this independent state legislature doctrine case that's going before the court. That's in North Carolina. What's the Moore v. Harper case? Yeah, that's the North Carolina case that is essentially contending. It's a it's about a North Carolina gerrymander. Um, but the legislature of North Carolina is taking the position that Somehow, under the Elections Clause and the Electors Clause of the Constitution, state legislatures have plenary, unreviewable power to set elections and that they cannot be reviewed by state Supreme Courts. And you're laughing because it's kind of a crackpot idea and it's got no real purchase 
in, you know, the founding documents and in, you know, centuries of history. A lot of this is rooted in a Justice Rehnquist opinion from Bush v. Gore that only got three votes. But already we've got four justices at the U.S. Supreme Court that in different cases have signaled some interest in this doctrine. And I mean, I think it's just really, you know, I'm making it sound weedy, but the fact is the consequences would be immense. This is like so many of the topics that you cover, so technical that for many, it's next story, next story, but the implications would be massive. The implications are massive. If I can flack my podcast with Mike Ludig about this a few weeks ago, I think he did. And Mike Ludig, he was so clear, right? This is a a person who almost got John Roberts' seat at the Supreme Court, a stalwart in the conservative legal movement who's come out so opposed to this idea of, you know, independent state legislature having plenary unreviewable power. And he was really good at explaining what the consequences would be. But I think it's just one of those many, many things that seems so technical and arcane that it's like, uh, I'm just going to pay attention to, you know, the affirmative action case. But this is huge because it could have absolutely ground shifting implications. And if people like are, need to like hang on to like one sentence, I would say this notion that state legislatures could just set aside, uh, you know, the popular will and do what they want is kind of the idea that John Eastman was pushing in 2020, right? When they were calling around to Georgia and saying like, oh, doesn't matter what. Appoint your own electors. Yeah. So so it's it's hugely consequential and it's going to be argued in December. And I guess I, the, I, I just use it in, as an example of why, again, I'm sort of bristle when it's like, oh, this is just partisan. You just don't like you know, this outcome because the Republicans are going to win this. This is horrible power in the hands of any legislature. There's some amicus briefs that are signed by a wide array of bipartisan judges, I believe, across around the country. Yeah, all the chief the chief judges, which who never file um, amicus briefs of, of the state courts, but also some real lions of the conservative legal movement who've come out and been like, setting themselves on fire, that this is the worst idea and also has no footing. Um, but but just to like wrap it back to, to, to your question, this is why I think we can't say this is a left-right problem. Like this is a democracy problem. This is a structural democracy problem. And if you were to say oh, no, checks and balances don't matter. The framers intended for state legislatures to be all powerful, (laughs) nothing that the state uh, courts could do about it. Um, It sows the seeds for such mayhem going forward. And I need to believe, as I said, that if future elections have to be decided by the Supreme Court, A, that that court is abiding by law, and triangulating by actual law, and that B, we're not fighting this out on the streets. Like, this is not something that goes well when you do, like, ninja battles. And so I just really feel like when when Justice Alito gets angry, I'm sorry I keep raising his name, he's so in my head right now, but when he gets angry at people undermining confidence in the court, 
my own sense is like, no, this is a complete self-own. Like you are undermining confidence in the court and then blaming the messengers. And I and so many of the women in the book who have been at the like sharp end of court decisions for years are the ones who are actually fighting for a court that, you know, by abiding by its own ethics rules, by behaving in a manner that befits, you know, lifetime tenured Article Three judges fighting for the court. And so it's, it's not fair to say that people who are criticizing the present court just don't like the outcomes. It's that I think we really, really need to have a public that has confidence in the court because the plan B is the army. Is it out of line to, to take that plan B and segue into Dobbs? Sure. Not, never out of line. There's no lines. Well, you talk about the Dobbs decision. You've a number of articles about the Dobbs decision. I guess, first off, maybe we can recenter it on the role of women. How, you know, what, what role did you see um, women playing in this case? And, you know, obviously women are, are the... Uh, are those that are affected, um, but in in the legal aspect of it? I mean, for one thing, it was very interesting to have a case that was ultimately decided on a Supreme Court that had more women on it than we've, you know, ever had in history. Like, that's that's powerful and it's interesting. It's also interesting that one of the people who was in the majority was a woman, um, which, you know, again, means you really cannot essentialize. It was powerful to see the case argued by women advocates. It's worth remembering, you know, and I always say that so many, you know, if you go back and you look at Griswold versus Connecticut, right, which is the case that gave uh, constitutional protection to the use of contraception in for married couples. It seems it's so a hilarious oral point. argument. I commend it to people just for the comedy value because the anxiety among the justices and the advocates, they're all like, oh, don't name the thing that we're regulating. Don't want to talk about the devices. Too weird. You know, and I sort of joked that if you have all these men talking about contraception and they're too afraid to name things, maybe they shouldn't be regulating it. And so there is some at least satisfaction in having women's voices in the conversation, having this litigated by women. But I will say, to me, in addition to, you know, Justice Alito's claim that, well, I can't find the word abortion anywhere <laughs> in, you know, the founding documents, so there's no interest here, was so structurally reading out of women, you know, and the, the, the ways in which they had no vote, they had no voice, they were not part of framing, you know, these foundational ideas of, of privacy and dignity. But more urgently, there were amazing briefs in this case. I mean, we have come a long way since Roe. We have come a long way even since Casey. And so the economists' briefs in this case that talk about, you know, the impacts on women trying to kind of lift themselves out of poverty, of having unwanted children, the medical briefs in this case are astonishing, you know, about the impacts on women's life and health and, and maternal and infant mortality when you are forced to, you know, have children. There is so much data that we didn't even have in Casey. Irrelevant to the majority, you know, irrelevant, utterly invisible. And the dissent 
in Dobbs, in that sense, is such a critiquer in two ways. One, this idea that, like, how is it that you have just papered over the lived lives of half the populace? Like, you're not even interested in what, how this impacts people. And just the, the real pain that people are going to be hurt and harmed because the majority doesn't take into account all of the data that they're not interested in. And that's one of the ways that I think women are, are, are invisible to the majority. But, you know, the other thing that is really interesting in, in, in the Dobbs dissent is, you know, this deep sense that, like, Casey actually was done to protect the court. Casey wasn't done to protect women and abortion. Casey, what that plurality opinion in Casey was a bunch of people coming together to protect the integrity and regard for the court as an institution. And the fact that that had no interest, you know, holds no interest for the majority was almost the thing that they were saddest about. That's the real heartbreak is you're sitting here and you're taking pot shots at, you know, Republican justices in Casey who are trying to hold up the idea of stare decisis and a court that keeps its promises and that if there's a reliance interest present here, we're going to figure it out. Irrelevant. And I think that that for me, this takes us back to the midterms where, you know, the data that we are seeing, you know, every single state where abortion came up uh, in a ballot initiative broke for abortion. Every single one, five states. We saw what happened in Kansas. We Michigan is now codifying not just Roe, but birth control. Well, Justice Alito might say, well, maybe that's the outcome that was needed. And, you know, our role is, is to in interpret the Constitution. And if, if the popular will is there, then it'll go that direction. Yeah, I mean, to which my answer is thank you for um, blessing gerrymandering in states that make it impossible for voters to effectuate their will. Gerrymandering is one I, I, you know, I don't even understand how there's a credible argument there. Well, I, I just think, again, you know, it is so disingenuous to say, go sort this out at the ballot box, if you're making access to the ballot box ever more difficult, particularly after, you know, Brnovich, and particularly we're going to see this in uh, the Alabama gerrymandering case, Merrill, you know, if you're making it impossible for women and people of color who really do have a dog in this fight to vote, please don't tell us to sort it out at the ballot box. It's really insulting. Maybe the very last thing I'll say about Dobbs is this. People are going to be harmed. I mean, we are already seeing, you know, horrific story, you know, the 10-year-old in Ohio who couldn't get an abortion after rape and incest. And it seems to me, I just <laughs> put this under the, like, classification of self-own, that it would not have been a hardship for that opinion to have been written with some solicitude for the actual impacts on actual people, for the actual suffering and hardship that was gonna come about. A quick pause for those attorneys listening for Sealy Credit. The code for this interview is 2291. Again, that's 2291. And now back to the interview. Dahlia, I know that I have limited of your time. I'd love to go back to the role of women in the profession. You say that women are particularly adept at the practice of law. What did you mean by that? I think what I'm trying to posit throughout the book 
maybe this goes back to our conversation about Justice Ginsburg, is that to be a really great lawyer, you don't have to have like a big neck. You don't have to have like bulging biceps, you know, you have to just be smart and meticulous and careful and creative. And I think maybe what I would suggest is, you know, I'm looking at these women, young women in the streets in Iran who are, you know, putting their actual bodies on the street. I cannot even imagine. No, but but it, it's astonishing. And by the way, they should be getting all of our attention. But what's more astonishing is they don't have the levers of law to protect them, right? They are living like under fiat by theocrats and male imperatives about how they live their lives. And I just posit that intention with what we have here, which is when indignity is heaped upon women, when, you know... Uh, there is violence and, and disrespect, we can still go to court <laughs> and file a thing. And if my book is right in this thesis, we can win a lot. And I want to just hold those two things as separate. We have the law. <laughs> like, we have the law. And that's huge. If, if women in Iran had the Robbie Kaplans and the Karen Dunns and the Bridget Amiris there filing, you know, it would be a different world. And so I want to really contrast the ability of the law to do huge, large-scale social change in this country, how much we've already done, how much there is to go, and the ways in which in the hands of like really adept, brilliant, deft women, you can have hugely consequential outcomes. And it doesn't require violence. It doesn't require power. It doesn't require money. It's not that women are better at law than men. It's that they're really, really good at law, as good at law. And what that means is that it's not, that these are th things are not, as I said before, settled by street fighting. These things are settled as long as there are courts that function in a rational, fact-based search for truth and justice. And so that was the story that I think has to be lifted up right now, is that it's not brute power. It's not, you know, police versus victims. It's something profoundly different from what women had 50 years ago and profoundly different from what women had 100 years ago. And I wanted to say women feel that in their bones. They know that, that we have a muscle memory. Every woman I know can ask her grandmother, did you have a credit card in your own name? No. Did you have to hide your pregnancy? as Justice Ginsburg had to, because you'd get fired. Yeah. We remember that. And it sucks because I think we a little bit hit the snooze button and went to sleep on that word. That's never coming back. We're going to be okay. And so what I want to really lift up is the law can get us out of that in a way that standing on the streets can't necessarily do. Then we need to be like amassing power not just behind, you know, court cases, but also behind democracy itself. And there's a reason the last three chapters of the book are about gerrymandering and voting rights and vote suppression, because the law is not just construed, in my view, as winning lawsuits. It's winning democracy. It's making sure that votes are counted. It's making sure that gerrymandered states are not malapportioned. I mean, this is all stuff we can do, and it doesn't require power. It just requires like deep, deep focus. And so I guess that's my very roundabout answer to your question. It's not that women are better at it, but I think women 
are susceptible to what the loss of it could mean? You know, it, it kind of strikes a chord with what you were saying at the top of our conversation about how Ruth Bader Ginsburg had to kind of step up and I don't know if it was chastise or, or remind her colleagues that you're thinking perhaps in a way that isn't inclusive of my experience or you know, the millions of women out there. I, I love that. And I also am really reminded of when Justice Ginsburg died, everybody talked about as though it was like a party trick, you know, that what she did was she would bring cases on behalf of men, right, instead of women, like her yeah. her early gender equality cases, she'd find like the guy who wanted to stay home and take care of his mother, you know, or, or the guy who wanted, you know, was the dependent spouse, like she and, and, and it was always in my view, talked about as though it was this like cute party trick. Like, this is how I get these three male judges in the panel before me to understand gender discrimination is that I'm going to have, you know, a male plaintiff so they could imagine. And I always felt like when you hear her talk about what the real project for her was, it was so powerful. She just genuinely believed that the world would be a better place if men could stay at home and take care of kids. If a man whose mother was sick and dying could get the same benefits that a woman could get to stay home and take care. You know, her husband was the cook in her family. Like she wasn't just fighting for women to be, you know, better or equal or have more power than men. She believed in her bones that what she was fighting for was to free up men from the stereotypes that said you can't be a caregiver, you can't be the person who stays at home, you can't be the person who cooks. And, you know, it's so funny because I feel like we misapprehend that second piece of her project, that she really thought we'd all be like fuller, more like fully realized moral beings if we weren't put in boxes that constrained both of us. And so I, I really think like one of the things we don't credit her with quite enough is sort of freeing up not just women to be whatever they want, but also freeing up men to be whatever they want. And that her view of equality was not zero sum. Yeah, It was that like we all lift each other up. And so I really think, you know, when she was on the court and she would, you know, there would be moments where she was like, you know, after Chief Justice Rehnquist in the Family Medical Leave Act case, you know, had this sort of awakening and writes this like really solicitous opinion about like caregivers and, you know, illness. She was so happy because she's like, he's like growing, you know, he's starting to, maybe we could all be better, you know, and nobody's taking anything away from you. Maybe we could all like level up. And so I just feel like one of the reasons, you know, and, 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 and maybe this is my slightly defensive, you know, a lot of people are like, why did you write a book about women? You know, men are awesome too. And, you know, they are, but like, we've been writing books about male lawyers, you know, for centuries. Books about male lawyers? Oh, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> They just need to be a little longer. But um, I think that I really wanted to say, like, the, the, the men surrounding the women in this book, whether they're other lawyers, you know, co-counsel, people who are on teams, or just like spouses or whatever, they're the heroes too. Nobody's suffering, <laughs> in, you know, in, in a world in which women sort of step into the breach. And I really feel like, particularly now when we're in this, like, bizarre world of essentializing in really bad and dangerous ways that I think that Justice Ginsburg's 
vision was not, you know, that, that we squash men down. And it's sad that men, you know, feel that way. So I don't know. I'm just trying to find, as you said, the hope in something she modeled, which was never antagonistic. It was always, I think, really capacious. I'm curious, was it part of your intention as well? You know, you mentioned, we, we talked about how if it wasn't for Sandra Day O'Connor, perhaps you wouldn't have found a path into the law. And, you know, the way the human mind works, you know, sometimes we need to see something before we can visualize and see ourselves doing that and, and becoming that. Was part of what you were trying to do with the book to set forward examples of women on the forefront doing bold and important and daring things also as an example. I mean, not just this is indicative of the moment, but, you know, something that readers may internalize and see themselves doing. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, that was, I, I, when people say, how did you pick these women or why didn't you include this other person? I mean, my original table of contents was three pages long. You know, this book could have, you know, 12 volumes. I wanted them not just to be sort of avatars for, you know, as we talked about different relationships to the law and insiders and outsiders. But I also wanted, you know, somebody at a big firm like Robbie Kaplan, but also somebody at the ACLU like Bridget Amiri. I wanted organizers like Stacey Abrams. I wanted absolute purposeful, almost myopic, you know, Nina Perales working away on gerrymandering. I, I think I just wanted any law student in the world, male or female, to be able to find themselves in one of these characters and to say, I remember at law school, it just felt like everybody was either going to a big firm or they were, you know, doing public interest. And I wanted to be able to tell a story of people who found different twisty paths, you know, Sally Yates, completely, you know, at the top of the top of the top acting solicitor general um, to, to, again, Becca Heller, you know, who who was putting together this huge group, IRAP, while she was still in law school. And I wanted to have not just, as you're saying, you know, models of power and creativity and ingenuity, but also that if you feel like I'm not the kind of person who can do like massive justice, then you are. You are. You can do all sorts of things. And maybe maybe it's why the book, one of the first chapters has all those lawyers running out to airports during the travel ban and just parking themselves, you know, whether they were tax attorneys or, you know, trusts and estates, helping people who were just trying to, you know, gain entry uh, and holding up signs, you know, in, in Pushtu and in Arabic saying like, you know, do you need a lawyer? I love that story because I love the chant outside SFO, these people chanting, let the lawyers in, let the lawyers in. <laughs> and like for one second after like the ignominy of being the most hated profession in the world. I love that too. We had a moment. To just be the heroes, you know, to have everybody say, look at what lawyers can do. And they did. And so I think that's the story, again, that was so central to my imagination here was to have everybody say, it doesn't matter what kind of lawyer I am. I could do amazing things for justice and for equality and for dignity. I wonder if we could talk about the case uh, that you covered that's probably the most inside baseball law topic in the book, which involved clerkships. 
And maybe you could tee that up and then we can walk through some of the issues involved there. This was very much related to the Me Too movement and also at the very center of judicial power. Yeah. And I, I think it's funny in a book about cases, uh, this is not, in fact, a case. This was sort of an incident. And it was a, one of those weird stories where I was both reporting on it and actually kind of participating in it, which is never a comfortable, mm. I think, situation for a journalist. But, you know, in the midst of everything else that was going on in the Donald Trump years, uh, there was a big sort of Me Too scandal in the federal judiciary involved um uh, Alex Kaczynski, the former chief judge of the Ninth Circuit, several women came forward and said that years ago they had been subject to, you know, being shown porn in chambers, being talked to wildly inappropriately in chambers, um, being touched, uh, being sexualized. And Judge Kaczynski at the time was still on the Ninth Circuit, sort of belittled them and belittled, particularly, um, I felt, belittled Heidi Bond, who was a former clerk. He just made light of the accusations. And at that point, after some anguish, I decided to write a piece for Slate at the time saying, look, I've known about this for decades myself. Everybody knew about this. You know, judges knew about this academics knew about this, you know, law professors for years had warned their students, you know, if you clerk for him, he's going to be inappropriate. Journalists knew, everybody knew. And I wrote a piece essentially corroborating, you know, things that I had known from my own clerkship 20 years earlier, but also making the point I hoped that clerkships and life-tenured judges and closed loops and open secrets are very dangerous and that we in the law have a culture of complicity. We have a culture of not taking risks, not standing up, of saying in much the same way that the other Me Too cases played out, well, that's just Alex being Alex, you know, which is not super different from some of the Me Too cases that were opening up at the time. And it was really interesting because, as I say in the piece, it got construed as, you know, Dahlia Lithwick just me too Alex Kaczynski. That was never the point. The point was to say everyone knew this. Everyone knew this and nobody did anything. And after I wrote that piece, other women came forward at some point. I think 14 women had come forward, some on the record, some not, to say that similarly inappropriate and in some cases, very inappropriate things had happened to them. And he retired. And that immediately stymied the investigation. They had initiated an investigation that stopped. And he retired with uh, a pension for life. So I wanted it to be part of a conversation about, as you said, federal clerkships, power, people being told to tolerate absolutely anything in chambers and to keep it a secret because clerkships are the launch pad to future clerkships and clerking on the court and, you know, big signing bonuses. But also that I think the, and this is another just unfortunate critique of, of the federal judiciary, that people who are trusted with adjudicating sexual harassment cases and adjudicating equality and uh, assault cases that cannot also adjudicate what's going on in-house with their own members is another signal that 
the judiciary is not to be trusted. And so, you know, we, we talked initially about sort of plummeting confidence in the judicial branch. This is of a piece, and it's very much of a piece with this move toward, oh, don't worry, we, we'll investigate the leak of, of Dobbs in-house. We'll just keep this in-house and like, so sorry, we never found anything. That you cannot simultaneously say, we are, you know, the finders of fact and the triers of complicated issues, but at the end of the day, trust us if you cannot be trusted to police your own members. And I just think I, I come at it from a place of deep sadness for the same reason, you know, that I, I said to you, I come at the court's current conduct from a place of deep sadness that that story broke. It was painful as a former Ninth Circuit clerk to be a part of that story. But it broke and, you know, there have been investigations and there have been conversations and in some jurisdictions there have been some reforms. But there continues to be <laughs> really bad misconduct among uh, judges in part because, as you said, there's a culture of power and access to power. And in part, I think that the real tragedy is that the public response is to say this is one more reason not to trust lifetime tenured federal judges. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the structure because you're in this position as a clerk. You're in you're in a very powerful club. You're the person in a case like this, and I'll just use general language rather than specific, but if your judge is the person that you're having a problem with and they're also your power source, you're in this internal conflict where any breach between you and that person hurts your career. And what they're doing is, is perhaps hurting you as, your per as a person and perhaps hurting your career. So you're stuck between some destruction and another kind of destruction. Right. And I think it goes to how hierarchical and stratified the profession is, right? There are very few professions where you figure out your first five minutes of your 1L year, which professors to suck up to, right? Which professors you have to befriend and get a job as a research assistant and take abuse from if they want to shell out abuse, because that's the person who will then feed you to the feeder judge, who then you, you have to then suck up to and take abuse from, and, you know, in order to get to the net, right? I mean, it's insane. Very, very few professions are this stratified that everybody knows when they enter Yale Law School, just for instance, that these are the people, these are the professors you have to make nice with because these are the judges that they will recommend you to. And those judges will vault you on to these other judges. And then you, you know, get a job in D.C. And that's that construction of the facts is not fair because most professors are great and most judges are great and most, you know, feeder judges are great, but some are not. And when you have such a stratified system, and also, you know, I think by definition, right or wrong, young law students really are kind of told to just suck it up and take whatever abuse is heaped on them because everything is worth it. And that's just acculturated into how legal education has worked, right, for, for a long time. It's acculturated into law firm life, and it's a problem. Yeah, there's this trial by fire mythos or, or creed. 
Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not actually analogous to, you know, uh, young physicians who have to stay up all night and, you know, take care of patients because at least that's to some end. This is literally just to the end of sucking up to the right people. Like there's no reason for, you know, to be hazed like this. And it's, it's as I said, it's problematic in every level. I, I've kind of almost come around to the view that we need to get rid of clerkships because the number of people who have since we reported not just the Kaczynski story, but other uh, judicial abuse story, who were just told, like, suck it up. You know, if you can get through this year, just get through this year, you're going to have a meal ticket at the other end. That's just, you know, that is not uh, befitting our profession. It is, it is sort of antiquated. I mean, it's kind of like this apprenticeship model that... Every member of the current Supreme Court, I think, save one, am I getting this right, was a clerk at the Supreme Court. I mean, it's insane. It's insane. And it's not as though in your time clerking, you are developing, you know, much needed and useful skills to be an attorney. And by the way, it is not the case that the people who clerk at the United States Supreme Court or that the federal federal appeals courts are the smartest law students in the country. They're the people who knew the people. Is that an admission against interest? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 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 just... A, a system of sorting that goes to the purest expressions of power and privilege and where you go to school and who you know. And there are outliers. And by the way, Justice Thomas should be commended because he really does, I think, take pains to you know not only take clerks from a handful of law schools, but the whole system almost entirely exists to reinforce the hierarchies that already existed, which is fine if it weren't also for the fact that it also exists seemingly to hide abuse. So, you know, if it were just pointless hazing and sorting, I mean, one of the things I say in the chapter is the number of young women who were told by me and other women, do not clerk for Alex Kaczynski, in the full knowledge that that is a launch pad to a clerkship for Anthony Kennedy, the number of women who took themselves out of the running because they were told, like, this will be hellscape for you, immediately means that a whole bunch of men got those jobs. So that's also... Which contributed to the the disparity, the gender disparity at the court. So I, I think you write about how it's, am I right, it's two to one or only a third of clerks are female? It's the numbers are astonishing. I, I don't know this term, but the numbers um, and 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 the number of minority clerks uh, astonishingly low, and that has persisted over decades. I want to just point out um, this was a huge surprise. The Solicitor General um, Elizabeth. Prelogger arguing in the affirmative action case a few weeks ago, did the thing I could not believe she did, which is just talk about how few women oral advocates there are and how few women, even in the SG's office, are, um, you know, arguing cases. And she, I was astonished because it was kind of her, it, it's exactly what we said about Justice Ginsburg in the Savannah Redding case, like in the moment, in a case that was only sort of orthogonally connected to the 
issues she was raising, essentially said, like, how are women going to see themselves arguing in front of the Supreme Court when there's only like a tiny fistful of women every year arguing in front of the Supreme Court? And to have the SG do that, it might have looked gratuitous to some people, but I think it was her effort to make the same point that all of these systems and hierarchies we have keep replicating themselves. You know, women are 50 percent of law school classes, and yet they're not arguing at court. If not more, right, Dahlia? I think yeah. tipping more female in the law schools. Yeah. And I and maybe maybe, you know, just to, to sort of put the the cherry on top, I guess this is a good time to note that Judge Alex Kaczynski, who stepped down from the Ninth Circuit, who there was no investigation, just joined Team Donald Trump and uh, filed a, a pleading in a Donald Trump case against Twitter in which he compared the former president to Galileo, a visionary of the law who, in disputing COVID and disputing the 2020 election, may still prove correct on both. But it's also kind of a, a little bit of a coda to the story, which is because that case was in no way resolved, there was no investigation, there was no findings of fact, there was no conclusion. This is a person who's going to argue in front of the Ninth Circuit that he used to be a member of that maybe Donald Trump was right about the 2020 election being rigged. So. Oh, I had not heard that. Oh, it's 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 quite a read. <laughs> Galileo. Galileo. Yeah, I know I want to give that give that a read and maybe brush up on my history in the process. Yeah. Um so, you know, in the in the case that we were talking about, when we were talking about clerkships, you mentioned what sounded like probably wise advice, or at least you were trying to make sure that these women or classmates or friends or, or mentees were at least going into something with their eyes open. And as a result, Dahlia, do you think maybe you, you might have shifted the, the number of women on the, on the federal courts by one or two? I'm sure I did. I think one of the things I learned after this story, after reporting it out and sort of becoming friends with some of the other women who had come forward, was the extent to which two things. One, we centered law clerks in these stories. They were very much stories about how law clerks were harmed. And almost everybody who came forward was either a former clerk you know, for, for Judge Kaczynski himself or somebody who was clerking somewhere else on the Ninth Circuit. But these abusive personalities, the abuse falls hardest on court workers, on marshals, on cleaners, you know, the people who did not get centered in this story. So first and foremost, the most powerful people this is a little bit like the 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 Weinstein uh, the Weinstein story, right? It's you have to be so powerful to come forward that nobody was talking about you know the secretaries, nobody was talking about um, you know staff attorneys uh, who may not have had the ability to come forward. So that's the the first thing. The other thing that was really interesting is that it turned out that all of the young women that I was advising, maybe you don't want to clerk for him. So you're right. There are certainly people who did not clerk for him because of me and probably didn't get Supreme Court clerkships because of me and because of a host of other law professors, male and female, who were saying the same things. A lot of the women who didn't get that informal advice were people of color. They weren't looped into the... So it, again, is a story about how networks reinforce themselves because 
the people who were the most vulnerable were not getting the most essential advice. And one of the things we have to think about going forward is that when we have these kind of open secrets, we forget that they're only open secrets for the most privileged people. And that a lot of law students who didn't have access to the informal sort of corridors of, hey, I'll just pick up the phone and call Dahlia Lithwick and find out the scoop here are the ones who really were preyed upon the most. And so I think, again, you know, it's part of my, I'm not sure what good clerkships are doing in the world, but if clerkships are serving to further harm the most (laughs) marginalized members of law schools who actually are lucky enough to score one, but not lucky enough to know somebody to warn them away, then that is another self-reinforcing, I think, power, you know, disparity and loop of violence we have to think about. So I, I really, when I wrote the piece and then that chapter in the book, you know, I took a lot of personal responsibility because I felt like if I had come forward with what I knew 20 years earlier, maybe Heidi Bond, maybe uh, Emily Murphy, maybe Leah Lippman would not have had to come forward years later. And uh, a lot of, you know, folks have given the feedback like, that's not right. Don't take that on yourself. You know, that this is a systems problem. But my very point is, (laughs) this is a systems problem. And it does no good at all when people write me emails and say, oh, man, thank you for writing that about Judge Kaczynski. Let me tell you about what he did to me, but you can't publish it uh, because that's how they, that these things c- continue to replicate. I'm not advocating that people uh, stay in the shadows, but I can certainly understand their, their instinct to want to not be known for that. Perhaps now I'm a, a noted litigator or perhaps now I'm a partner at a big firm. Uh, maybe I'd rather people not associate me with, with something uh, where I was you know, a victim or perhaps uh, powerless to stop someone who at the time was more powerful. Yeah. And I, and I think I note in the book that almost every single one of the women who did come forward have, whether formally or informally, become sort of part-time, you know, judicial reform people. They're called upon to testify. They write op-eds. You know, they're constantly being asked to, to serve on, you know, commissions or committees or to, you know, think about this. And I don't think any of us signed up to sort of minor in sexual harassment in the Article Three judiciary. I mean, everybody has lives and, you know, spouses and kids and another full-time job. And so I think it's true. Not only do you not want to be remembered as the person who came forward, but you certainly don't want to serve in that role for the rest of your life. And if you're going to serve in that role for the rest of your life, like at least let's reform <laughs> the system that's broken. And so I think, again, I have seen amazing work in some of the circuit courts to try to increase transparency, to try to improve reporting, to create a culture of your clerkship is not a family. You, know, you don't have to keep secrets. Like, you know, like really trying to convince at the highest levels judges themselves that if you see something happening in another chambers, do something. It is not you know, okay to say, oh, that's just X being X. But at the same time, I have to say, I've heard federal judges say to me, like, I've solved this by never hiring a woman again. Yikes. So problem solved. And I think it goes to maybe this overarching theme or one of our overarching themes today, which is if you are going to be given lifetime tenure, There are sort of a lot of collateral obligations to do the right thing that come with that. And any 
jurist who says, you know, oh, well, if he wasn't like raping people, then, you know, this isn't a problem or, oh, you know, women are too thin skinned, so I won't hire any of them is actually, again, contributing not just to the problem, but contributing to a public sense that maybe the judiciary can't be trusted to decide gender issues because they can't police their own. And that just breaks my heart because, as I said about the Supreme Court, it doesn't, these are not hard behaviors to learn. And these are not hard processes to put in place. And the judiciary should be at least as good as like Apple and Nike at policing, you know, misconduct. That's a pretty low ceiling. And I just think that the idea that if we don't talk about this, if we don't report this, if we just shunt judges off into retirement and don't investigate, then the problem goes away just ignores the fact that the public is very, very aware that right or wrong, the federal judiciary, its only currency is our confidence in it. And the confidence has dipped really low. Uh, you were a clerk. There's these clerk networks. You likely know not only the clerks who were clerking with you at the time, but you might know those who came before and those who came after. And there, you know, you're stepping into, as you mentioned, a lot of privilege and a lot of power. How do you create incentives to let people raise their hand and complain when at the same time, you know, there's so much pressure to stay within the fold and keep reaping the benefits of all that? I mean, listen, that was the piece I wrote, you know, that was the piece I wrote saying I got to be on all the panels and brief the justices and go to the cocktail party. Like I reaped the benefits for decades of not saying anything and got invited to, you know, speak at the Ninth Circuit and had lots and lots of perks uh, of my job. And it was one of the reasons that I stayed silent was, you know, and I think like many people, I, I said to myself, you know, if it's an open secret, then it's not on me you know, to, to report because everybody knows. And as I said, it turns out not everybody knew. And as it turns out, that's part of the complicity in allowing it to persist. So I think you're, you've kind of identified the problem in any system, by the way, in any closed system, this is not a clerkship problem by any means. But I think it is a problem of I want to say sort of bystanders, and it is a problem of cultures wherein, and I think uh, Leah Lippman has written so uh, um, powerfully about this, and Liv Warren, uh, who came forward and talked about Judge Reinhardt, testified about it before Congress, has written so powerfully about this. I think we as lawyers have a very strong orientation towards sort of keeping our head down and staying out of trouble, right? And there's, again, that's the sort of risk aversion that, you know, carries us so far in life. And it's uh, in some ways a useful quality. But I think maybe what I'm trying to argue for, and again, I think uh, people have said this much better than I have in the context of reforming, you know, the judiciary to account for this. I think that we have to really foster a culture of standing up for one another. And whether it's bullying, whether it's sexual harassment, whether it's, you know, racism or transphobia or homophobia, whatever it is, we can't, it goes back to your guy is going to save us thing. You know, there, there's no one coming to save us. No one person should be entrusted with 
being the hero. And I think, again, it's doubly important for those of us in this profession who think so deeply about accountability, about consequences, about, you know, justice and fairness and equality. Like, this is the water we swim in. So the fact that it's hard for us to do this yeah. is astounding, right? We're not orthodontists. And so all due respect to orthodontists, but I just think if we can't embody and perform and model what it is to step forward when injustice is happening in our workplaces, who is going to do it? And I just am trying to urge us into a culture of saying, if not me, then who? And a culture of saying, like, when I see an entire legal system that is kind of ossified around, you know, centuries old ideas of hazing and of, you know, having to work long hours just to prove that you're, you know, you can cut it and all of the ways in which those power structures reinforce just bullying. It doesn't even have to be sexual harassment. It can just be mistreatment and belittling and doing grunt work for no reason. All of it. If our profession can't correct for it, we are in the wrong profession. And so I just, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of preaching to the choir, I know, but I think that our failures to set up processes for accountability within the profession, within the judiciary, is just like, uh, I, I think, an enduring shame that needs to be corrected. So this is systemic. It's also individual. I think we're about out of your time. I wonder if there's any note that you'd like to to end on. Let, let me say this. I, I wrote the introduction. I wrote the introduction to Lady Justice after I'd written the book. And I decided to write about Polly Murray, who um, I had never learned about in law school. And it turns out almost nobody learns about Polly Murray in law school. And pa Polly Murray, for folks who don't know, pretty much invented you know, both race and gender uh, protections rooted in the 14th Amendment. Polly Murray writes a brief uh, a paper at Howard Law School, Howard Law School, where Polly Murray is one of a handful of women allowed to be there because Polly Murray couldn't get into first choice law school because female. The brief gets repurposed as, as what becomes like the brief in Brown v. Board. Polly Murray's name's not on it. Nobody tells Polly Murray. Then Polly Murray writes like essentially, you know, the the same thing, applying the 14th Amendment to gender equality, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg ends up using that to kind of carve what is modern uh, 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 gender discrimination doctrine. And I just, I think maybe I'll just end on this. Like, I start the book with Polly Murray. People should watch the documentary, My Name is Polly Murray, by uh, Betsy West and Julie Cohen. It's unbelievable. But I started with somebody who was, should have been a legal icon, a constitutional icon should have every law school should have buildings named after Polly Murray. Nobody does. Uh, Yale now has a Polly Murray, one of the residential colleges. Um, I wanted to start with somebody who did everything and got no credit and who constitutional history seems to have just papered over. Although, I mean, I could talk about the billion other things Polly Murray did for an hour. And I did it for some of the reasons we're talking about today, which is like ours is a profession that really values credit, that really values who gets famous, that really values 
um, being recognized for, you know, your heroic work. And I tried to write a book and I centered Polly Murray because I don't think that's a useful model for us. I think a much better model for us is we are all working together. This is hard. It takes years in this profession to get one singular outcome. And sometimes you lose and sometimes you lose a lot. But it is not a profession that benefits from either waiting around for someone else to do stuff or from being the person who's so desperate for credit that the work doesn't get done. And I wanted this book to be the sort of sweet spot, the seam <laughs> between people who were amazing and heroes and didn't get credit, but also people who are just ordinary. You know, <laughs> None of them think they're a legend. And to me, you know, sort of the book begins with someone who by every metric you and I would use for like rock star of law. And yet exceeds every single right marker and doesn't get and doesn't get recognized because I think I wanted this book to maybe remind us all that if you're looking around like for the RBG look for the Polly Murray because <laughs> because they're all around you well Dahlia Lithwick writes on the law and the courts for Slate her podcast is amicus and her recent book is Lady Justice. Dahlia, such a pleasure talking to you and seeing your face. I'll be tuning in myself to your podcast in the near future. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was like deep and kind of therapeutic and also like um, really, really capacious and expansive. So thank you. For more legal explainers and interviews with the Titans of Law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at talksonlaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.